All right, if you've got a Bible from the coffee house, we're on page two. Genesis 2, rhythm of life is what we've been looking at for the last four weeks. Let me, let me do a quick summary of what we've said so far in this series. I know not everybody can be here every week. The sermons are available online if you want to check those out. But here's the quick recap. We're introducing in this series a brand new core value in some ways to our church. We've been around for about a year and a half And we realized that some of what we took for granted, we needed to say more explicitly. What was implicit needs to be stated explicitly. And that is that we are a church that values a rhythm of life. And the reason we value that is because God is a God of rhythm. God, in Genesis 1, he orders in rhythm and cadence. It's this rhythm of space and movement and rest. You know... You guys know I like to burn stuff, not like a pyro, but just like somebody who likes to sit around a campfire. And some of you are questioning whether I'm a pyro. Yes, maybe so. So I talked about rhythm. Is, it's like musically, rhythm is about, it's about sound and rest. It's about sound and silence. And you need both in order to have rhythm. Otherwise, it's just noise. You can talk about it with dancing. It's, it's about movement and stopping. It's about change of direction. It's about this and that. Uh, But man, I had a friend last night share a really great metaphor that just resonates with me. He said, he said, fire is wood and the space between wood. You see, it, it needs substance and space. It needs fuel and oxygen. That's us. We are made to live in rhythm. So what is the rhythm we're made for? designed by a God of rhythm to live in rhythm, what does that look like? In part two, we said a big part of how God designed rhythm is in terms of calendar. Calendar, the the time itself. If you look at Genesis 1, Genesis 2, God is, he's ordering time for time to point to him. Did you know that a lot of cultures do not live, at least used to, do not live on a seven-day week? Why do we live on a seven-day week? Because that's the way God made it. You know, it's, it's actually a Christian idea to, uh, for a while, after the French Revolution, they tried a, a 10-day work week. And people just, like, they were so burnt out from all of the labor. A seven-day week is, a, is God's idea for time. Day and night is God's idea of work and rest, of, of work six days and Sabbath and slowing down and stopping. But it's not just days and weeks, it's actually years, the years of of Israel's calendar, the, the movement of the moon and the stars were, were meant to point to worship. They were meant to point to God. Now, this is hard for us to understand because we inherit our calendars, and our calendars aren't Christian for the most part. They're cultural. And so the, the calendars that we're inheriting have our culture's values, not our actual, the values of our faith, the things we hold most dear. And so part of what we do as a church is we live in a cadence with a, a rhythm of, of weekly worship, of stopping what we do and resting and celebrating who God is, of reminding ourselves that, that we are not God and He is. But we also live at, at our church on a Christian calendar, a Christ-centered calendar, where we spend more time focusing on things like the incarnation, uh, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus at Advent and Christmas, at Easter and Pentecost, we spend more time on a Christ-centered calendar than we do the other ones. And we encourage each family to do the same thing, each person. 
the next part of what we mean by a rhythm of life here at our church is a rhythm of life-giving limits. Remember, it's wood and the space between. It's sound and silence that makes rhythm. It's work and rest. In Genesis 2 and 3, we saw that God isn't just a God of rhythm. God designs us limited for good. We are dust. We are breath. And that's very good, he says. He, he looks at the work of his hands and he says, I know you're fragile. Like a, a potter to a piece of pottery that he's just designed. He says, but this is exactly how I made you. Limited. And then he further limits us. Do you remember that tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And he says, I'm, I'm actually doing this for your good. That I want you to have life, not death. Don't be deceived. Don't hear those other voices that are questioning. I want you to trust me. That is the way to life. Life giving limits. And so it, it looks like um, rhythms in our ministries. We don't want the same people serving every week in our ministries. And our ministry leaders, we want time to give them margin and, and a break. We don't want to see burnout. Burnout is not a mark of the culture that we want. It may happen, but it's happening because we or us are not doing what we aspire to with a life-giving limit. Today is part four, and it's really the third dimension of what we mean by rhythm of life. It, it's a Christ-centered calendar. It's a life-giving limit, but it's also what we call transforming graces. The transforming graces, if you're a partner here, the first thing we have you do is go through a course called Welcome Home. And Welcome Home is about to wrap up for our, our new graduates. We have 14 people about to finish up. And part of what you do is you adopt a rule of life based on the transforming graces. If any of this sounds intriguing, we'd love for you to sign up for the next round of Welcome Home as it starts in a, in a couple of weeks. So the transforming graces is a, a rule of life. Now, rule of life, it's, it's language that comes from ancient Latin, the word regula. This is Justin Early in his book, The Common Rule. He said the word rule is used because it comes from the Latin word regular, a word associated with a bar or a trellis, the woodwork on which a plant grows. Any gardeners in the house? Great, four of us. So my illustrations may not make any sense. Okay, let's go. So this is, this is my garden this spring. So we planted several things. We've got some broccoli that's already overgrown by the spring. We've got some squash and some spinach over here, some tomatoes, some zucchini, some beans behind it. And everything is looking pretty good, except the broccoli. It's a little outgrown. It's not going to do great. Foreshadowing. But look at my garden last week. This is embarrassing, guys. <laughs> this is embarrassing. Here are a couple of reasons why this happened. Uh, one, have you all noticed that July had a ton of storms? It's like, I don't remember July being the rainy season in Memphis. And so a lot of times, these broccoli plants, one storm came through and they all just turned over. The trellises that I had there, like the wire cages for my tomato plants, they just bent in the wind and they were just on the ground. And so it's like, if you wanted to pick up fruit, it was probably rotten because it was there on the ground. Another thing that happens is it's just got really hot, and I don't love to pick weeds in the heat. So what I needed to do in my garden, as you can see, it's, 
This is embarrassing. I, kn- I know. I'm not saying this to brag about my garden, clearly. But can I, can I admit another thing that may be even more embarrassing? And that's that the summertime doesn't just do this to my garden. It does this to my schedule. And I don't think it's just me, but let's assume for the, for the morning that it is. The summertime hits, and the, the cadence of school calendar stops. I've got three little kids that normally I'm trying to get to school by a certain time. I know I've got to pick them up at a certain time. We've got a certain bedtime. Summertime, none of that goes. We don't care really what time you go to bed. We don't really care what time you wake up. You can sleep in if you want. So the thing that was happening to my garden is that, man, I needed to pull some things out and to weed. There's a lot that overgrew this summer that I need to reevaluate. There's some things that I thought I had built that in my schedule and in my rule of life of seeking the Lord, they kind of got blown over in a few storms that my family was facing this summer. Like hard stuff that hits and it catches you by surprise and the wind blows and it's like. And then sometimes my rule of life, my schedule of being with the Lord, it actually bears a lot of fruit. You know what I mean by fruit of being with the Lord? It's like joy and peace and blessing and It's like, I have these seasons, but sometimes what was good for one season needs to shift, and I need to plant something different for the next season. So what I'm doing with my garden this week, and what I think is the perfect time for all of us to do with our schedules, is to do some work of pulling weeds, of rebuilding trellises, and of replanting seeds so that you can have a harvest come Thanksgiving. If you're wanting a harvest spiritually or in your garden come Thanksgiving, you're going to need to revisit your rule, your trellis right now. And the good news is school's starting. Good news, bad news, right? The schedule's changing. If you're in college, if you're in grad school, you, you may have even taken summer classes, but you're shifting into, this is a transition moment for so many people. Now, not everybody, the young 20-something who's already out of grad school and doesn't have kids, this may not feel like a natural transition to you, but I want to encourage you to embrace it as one anyway. Because really, if you just look around the whole community, from children to college to parents, this is a major transition where it's time to replant, rebuild, and to do some weeding. Can I invite you into that today? And really, in the next couple of weeks in our group life, our group practice will be on revisiting the transforming graces. But here's the reality of kind of where we're at. When it comes to rule of life, seeking God in a normal rhythm of life with God, when it comes to rule of life and when it comes to gardening, we're asking the jack and the beanstalk question. Where are the magic beans? What do I need to trade to just get magic beans? Do you remember the story of jack and the beanstalk? He, he finds these magic beans. He also, he's trying to trade some things for a golden hen that lays golden eggs. I was looking at the story of Jack and the Beanstalk. He's trying to trade for magic beans. He's trying to find the golden hen. He's trying to slay the giant so that he can get rich. Look, this is how the short story ends. Jack and his mother were now very rich and they lived happily ever after. <laughs> it's like, that sounds great to most of us. <laughs> Where are those magic beans? We want magic beans, we want magic words, like abacadabra. We want to just simplify it to where we can just do a a simple thing and it all plays out for us. It's magic, it's there in an instant, it's power. 
magic words, magic wands. I'm not like a Harry Potter guy, but I remember that scene where Hermione is kind of snobbishly looking down on her friends, and she's trying to teach them how to say Wingardum Leviosa with the right British accent. Apparently, it only works if you have a British accent. This sounds pretty great. Magic is the dream of, it's really the dream of power without effort. And that's what we want. We want it spiritually. A lot of times the church, either now or in its history, has turned what we sometimes call spiritual disciplines or the rule of life or spiritual practices. We've turned those into magic. So if you think of scripture, a lot of people, they just want to open their Bibles and point to a text and say, God, speak to me. One author, he says, it's divination, really. You see, we don't want to become different. We just want to see the difference. To be able to see or to make a difference without becoming different, that's magic. That's what we want. Power without effort. It's not just pointing down with this passage of Scripture. It's, it's where you turn Scripture into like a manual or a handbook. It's just a checklist where the mystery of how big God is is just simplified in, into like a spell. Just do this, just do this, just do this. You see the magic in like the Lord's, not the Lord's prayer, the sinner's prayer. Forget a life of self-surrender and discipleship, <laughs> taking up your cross and following Jesus every day. No, just pray this prayer to yourself. It's magic. Church Christ people, don't let me leave you out. The waters of baptism. If you could just get in the water, then everything else is going to be fine. It's magic after all. It's a moment. It's power with no effort. That sounds great. In the history of the church, the, the table has been turned into magic. All you need to do is open your mouth and have the priest put the bread on your tongue, and you'll be transformed. Power without effort. It's, it's prayer. It's worship, though. Worship. I, I see this on, I watch a lot of worship on YouTube, and there's nothing that looks more like the Wizard of Oz than a YouTube worship scene. It's like, if you could just get the lights and the right cutting camera angle and the, even the movement of the camera, that's how you know you're going to have a spiritual experience. It's magic. It's power without effort. It doesn't even require your voice. It certainly doesn't require other people. It doesn't require your musical gifting. It's magic, it's, and it sounds great. But there's so many problems with magic. Can I just reflect on magic for a few minutes more? This may seem like a really weird sermon to you, but it's one that I've been looking forward to for months. You see, I, I read a book. <laughs> I don't, I, that wasn't even meant to be funny, but okay. <laughs> I read this book by a, a guy named Andy Crouch. And he's, it's called The Life We're Looking For, and it's one I've referred to earlier. But he is a, a kind of a Christian intellectual. He, he went to Harvard, did a lot of campus ministry. His, his life is wrapped up in the life of young people. And it's also wrapped up in the life of technology. And he says, nobody else believes in magic, of course. We don't call it magic. We call it technology. He says, Arthur C. Doyle, famous science fiction author. He says, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. That's what we want. 
We want a device. We want a technology that will just do it for us. At the touch of a button, the light comes on. We want a technology to drive. I drove 80 miles an hour yesterday. It's incredible what we can do with technology. This is, I think, really what we want. We want a magical shortcut to maturity, both spiritually, but also in the rest of our lives. And our whole culture seems to be built on pursuing this technology of, of this power without effort. We want this power without persistence. By persistence, I mean effort plus time. We just want it now. Crouch, he calls this the superpower zone. You know superpowers? Marvel movies are huge. When, I said Marvel, DC, also huge. Superman, when he wants to fly, does it take any effort? He doesn't seem to. He just like wills it, and he just does it. It's not like he's drained by flying. Spider-Man, do you remember the, the movie with Miles Morales, Into the Spider-Verse? Little boy Miles becomes bit by a spider, becomes Spider-Man, and he can't help but be sticky. He has a superpower. It's power without effort. In fact, it, it's going to take effort to become able to wield the power that he has. Power without persistence. But the, the problem with superpowers is, yes, they, they give you power without effort, power without persistence, but they also give you power without personhood. Power without personhood. Let me illustrate with Hayden Wagner. Hayden Wagner is one of our partners here. He's in my Oikos group. And this spring, Hayden flew commercially to Spain. Now, there's nothing that's more superpower zone than flying commercial. Now, the Irwins, they just got here. Uh, Tunisia via Europe, made their trip. And flying commercial, if you've ever done it for any distance, it, it isn't heart and soul and mind and strength for the love of a neighbor. Have you ever been in an airport? It's the opposite of all of those experiences. It is heartless. It is soul crushing. It is mind numbing. And there's no love that is designed in the whole process. It's just like expediency, let's just get the planes in the air like, like a bus. Just get them going. It's superpower. You are flying around the world. Incredible. And yet, there's nothing more soul-crushing than flying around the world commercially. So Hayden Wagner, he flies commercially so that he can walk the Camino 500 miles over six weeks. Now, which one of those is more fully human? See, we want magic, but magic has this way of undermining who we actually are. Not only who we are, but how we treat other people too. Let me, let me illustrate. Magic doesn't deliver the freedom that it promises. We want shortcuts. We want quick roads to maturity. We want quick fixes. We want light switches and cars, and we want to fly. But when you fly, it crushes you. When you flip the switch, it means that you're less able to do many, many things. There's a trade-off that's always involved in the pursuit of magic. Now, I'm not talking about magic today. I hope you know. We're talking about the rule of life. We're talking about the transforming graces. We're talking about this desire for a quick fix, a road to spiritual maturity that doesn't take time and doesn't take effort. But what happens when we grab onto things? I didn't bring my phone up. But what happens when we grab onto things like technology instead? 
it actually captures us in ways that we don't actually want, that aren't making us more human, alive in heart and soul and mind and strength for the love of God and for the love of neighbor. That's not what the things we're grabbing onto do. And yet we feel trapped. We don't want to be on our phones. We don't want to be tied to the screens as much as we are. But how do we get away? How do we break free? It feels like we're powerless because behind the magic, there's something else working. It doesn't give the freedom. It actually, instead of mastering something, we end up mastered by it. Let me illustrate with a few stories. You remember the the old movie Fantasia? This is the Sorcerer's Apprentice. Mickey. It is... At his peak, they're trying to recover, Disney's trying to recover, like, imagey, um, Mickey's image culturally, and so they put him in this movie. And The Sorcerer's Apprentice is based on this 1797 poem of a German poet named Goethe. And it plays out this story where Mickey, the sorcerer, goes to sleep, and the Sorcerer's Apprentice rises, and he, he starts dabbling in the power and the magic of his master. And all he really wants is somebody to do the work for him. It's amazing the relationship of magic, of, of power without effort to slavery. Power without effort to slavery. So he, he wants to create something to do the work for him. And so he creates the broom to do the sweeping. And the broom is going to carry the water for him, literally. But as it turns out, you remember what happens? He ends up flooded. He can't control it. He ends up overwhelmed by his pursuit of the quick fix. Of, of power without effort. This is the story of Aladdin, right? Do you remember the, the powerful man Jafar in the scene? He wants, what is it? Um, great cosmic power, itty bitty live in space. Like there's a trade-off that comes. You, you want power, you got power, but you also got bondage. It, it gives more, it gives less in both at the same time than you want. Remember, we're still talking about rule of life. (laughs) So we want this spiritual life of life with God. We want maturity. We want the good life. But the thing is, if you don't grab onto the right thing, sometimes the thing you grab onto will grab back. So Goethe, the poet, he says, "The The spirits which I have summoned, I now cannot banish. This is Bilbo, Lord of the Rings. Gandalf, he says, Odd things happen to people that have such treasures, if they use them. Let it be a warning to you to be very careful with it. It may have other powers than just making you vanish when you want to. Power without effort. Power without persistence. Leads to power without personhood. So where does all this come from? Where's like the first time that humans start exploring this kind of magic? It's ironic at the fullest level that if you were to just pull out your phone, turn it over, there's a little apple with a bite from it. How fitting. So what I want to do today is dive into that story of the trees. Now, we looked at the trees last week, and we looked at the limits, but there's something unique about the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that's worth more exploration. Now, we can't talk about everything we did last week. 
If you're intrigued, go back and listen to it. That's fine. Or just read it and open up a commentary. There's some really good stuff out there. But today, we're going to explore this pursuit of maturity through the shortcut. Adam and Eve's desire for magic, to become something without having to become different. And then we're going to see what that might look like for us, all with an eye towards the transforming graces. All right, Genesis 2, page 2 in your Coffee House Bible. We'll just really try to draw out the passages that have to do with these special trees. Special trees. All right, Genesis 2, verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden, a garden, this is really cool, in, in the Greek language, whenever they're translating this, they use the word paradisos. You hear the word paradise? He's making a paradise. It's an idea that comes from the Persian gardens. They're basically like ancient zoos that have walls, and they're just beautiful. Lots of landscaping and lots of like animals. They're doing hunting. They're putting lions in there. It's, it's this idea that's all across the ancient Near East where there are these special gardens where royalty can hang out and where the gods can hang out. Israel has this story. A, guard, a garden in the east in Eden, Eden in delight. And there he put a man that he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. All kinds of trees. We're later going to be introduced to the fig tree whenever they're dressing themselves. But there's two trees that he especially points to in just a minute. These trees, he says, were pleasing to the eye. They're beautiful. Um, Kelsey and I were talking this weekend. We love turning onto Fair Meadow just over by Cherry and Park because there's a turn. And then in the springtime, when you make the turn, then it's like it, it turns into this huge trees. Now, trees, as we learned last week in Memphis, can be devastating in the right circumstances. This is the case here, too. They're pleasing to the eyes, but they also are good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I love what Bonhoeffer says about their location in the middle. He says, man's limit, like this rule to limit him, it's the middle of his existence, not the edge. He says, limit, don't eat, and life, the tree of life. These two trees, limit and life, these are the untouchable, inaccessible middle of a paradise around which Adam's life revolves. To be human is to revolve around life and limit. One of these trees is called the tree of life. Tree of life. Tree of life reminds me of another Disney movie, uh, Tangled, with Rapunzel. You know, she has this life-giving hair, and Mother Gothel wants to take it. What happens when Mother Gothel takes the hair? She cuts it. Nothing. It's death. <laughs> she, it's the same story, just over and over. The ancient Near East also had these stories. There's the, the tale of Adapa in Assyria. Adapa was the mortal son of one of the gods. And by the gift of the gods, he's given this special food and special drink that can help you live forever. Except Adapa gets tricked. He ends up thinking that the special food will kill you, and so he just lets it go. And he kind of forfeits immortality. Have you ever heard of the Epic of Gilgamesh? It's one of the, the again, Mesopotamian kind of stories in this, this time. And it, it's this plant in the story that gives new life, letting him, as he says, return to the state of my youth. 
It's, it's like the fountain of youth, except it's a food, Gilgamesh. And so he calls this plant, man becomes young in old age. Terrible name, but that tree of life is way better. But man becomes young in old age. Unfortunately for him, just before he gets to eat this plant, a snake slithers in and takes it away, and he doesn't get to enjoy it. So there's this, there's this common language in the ancient world of trees of life. It's in their literature. They're telling stories about trees of life or special plants that give life. It's also all over the, their artwork. The iconography of Assyria, if you just were to Google it, you could, you could spend a lot of time just seeing this. If you went to the Louvre in uh, Paris, you could see these depictions of trees of life in the ancient world. And for them, it was a way of talking about the intersection of a royal human and a divine God sharing life together. But it, it seemed that the gods always were holding out on the people. But Israel writes in the same kind of language and says a very different story. Instead of the tree of life being held out, the first command the Lord gives in Scripture, the first time the word command shows up, the first imperative for humans, it's you're free to eat of any tree in this garden. Eat. The tree of life is God's gift to humanity. I want you to enjoy this. I want you to live with me in this paradise. You know what? This is actually what I command you to do. <laughs> I, I command you to experience life in all of its goodness and fullness. That's what I made you for. That's, that's the tree of life. It's, it's life and it's blessing. Blessing is a really key word in this section. It seems to be a source of rejuvenation. If they just keep walking over the tree, they'll never die. I don't think it's these, that these people are immortal. It's that they need the tree of life in order to live. The tree of life is life with God. But there's a second tree here. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we talked about this some last week. Unlike the tree of life, this tree is not in the ancient Near East. No one is writing about the tree of knowledge of good and evil in their neighbors. And in the Old Testament, there's no more references to what this tree is. In other words, the emphasis is not on this tree. The emphasis is on the command. Let me, let me illustrate. If you skip down a few verses, the Lord God, he, he took the man that he, he made and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So hand in hand, you're commanded to eat, tree of life, all the rest, but don't eat this tree. It's not about the tree, it's about the command here. There's, there's this limit that's tied. Again, life and limit are the center of our existence. But what is this knowledge? Now, you probably know that the Hebrew word for no means a lot more than no like intellectually or cognitively. So knowledge is about experiencing something or someone. If a man knows his wife, he's experiencing her, not just like getting to know her and speed dating, right? There's a difference. Biblical knowing is about experiencing. So the knowledge, the experience of good and evil, it's really broad. It's, it's like good and bad. It's the pleasurable and the sorrowful. It's, it's a broad meaning. Some say the knowledge of good and evil is sexual because of that word no and how it's used for married people. Some, this is actually an ancient interpretation from some of the rabbis where the serpent is a, 
a symbol, let's just say, of something. And so the knowledge of good and evil is, is understood sexually by some people. I don't think that's what's going on. Some people think that it's about a, like a, a morality of, of learning right and wrong. But I don't think that's what's in view here either because they already know that it's right and wrong. <laughs> that, that's why God is expecting them to follow. There's something else going with this knowledge of good and evil, and I think it's, it's just simply wisdom. Wisdom. God wants them to have wisdom. This is divine wisdom. In, in the Old Testament, whenever this, this idea of knowing good and evil shows up, let me just give a few for instances. In, in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 1, it talks about children who don't yet know good and evil. What's it saying? It's saying that basically they're immature. They're morally unaware. In the book of 2 Samuel, there's this old man who David is trying to honor. And the old man says, look, I'm 80 years old. I don't even know good and evil anymore. Is he saying that he forgot a lot? He's actually saying more than that. It's almost like he's senile and he realizes it. So it's the thing that young people and it's the thing that very elderly people have in common is that they don't, they're not working with a full deck of wisdom yet. They don't have the maturity. Do you remember when Solomon becomes king? You can have riches, you can have power. What do you, what do you want, Solomon? And he says, I want to know good and evil. I want to be able to discern the difference here. This Knowing good and evil is actually something that God wants for his people to enjoy. But it, it's, not meant, it's not meant for children. It's meant for children to grow up into. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes persistence. It takes full personhood, heart, soul, mind, strength for love. It, ta- it takes a lot to grow into the knowledge of good and evil that I think this story is promising. And yet, of course, there's the serpent who promises a shortcut, another way to get it. Now, John Goldingay in his commentary, he says, this prohibition is strange in light of elsewhere that knowing good and bad and being able to determine the difference is a key skill for life. This command implicitly is a test. It gives humanity the opportunity of obedience. And we'd say, we add to his words, the opportunity of disobedience. God wants us to have it. But the idea here is that there's a choice. There are two paths to it. The first path is the the path of eating it that leads straight to death. If you eat this, you will certainly die. You have the tree of life, and in one sense, you have the tree of death. But it's actually not the tree of death. That's too simplistic because it's more a tree of decision. It's a decision of which path. It's a tale of two trees, to use the language of Tim Mackey, Bible Project guy. He says, think of these two trees as being next to each other. Remember, the two trees are in the middle. They're next to each other in the garden. The command is to eat from all the trees, and that includes the one in the middle, the tree of life. However, Mackie says, to experience and eat from the tree of life, you have to walk by the tree of knowing good and bad and not take from it. Avoid it. It looks good, but God said that will kill me. That's the thing that will kill me and hurt myself and others. So you may be asking, well, why is there a tree there if it's going to kill you? Jewish, ancient Jewish, and all the way through contemporary Christian interpreters, they say, this tree seems to be something that God wants for his people to enjoy later. 
when they grow up. This is, this is John Walton. He says, nothing's wrong with the tree. We're desiring good things. The tree would have use in the future, he says. When the time was right, the first couple would be able to eat from it. He says, compared to like the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. You remember, he takes him up onto the high mountain, and Satan says to Jesus, you can have all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus says, no, not like this. Was Jesus worthy of all the kingdoms of the world? Is Jesus currently reigning over all the kingdoms of the world? Yes, but not like this. There's two paths. There's the shortcut, and God says that way leads to certain death. It just walks off a cliff. But the other path is to over time, with time plus effort, with, with persistence, to come and walk with me in this garden, to come visit me in the tree of life. And over time, you'll grow up into someone who can handle this. It sort of reminds me of like peanut butter and little babies. It, if, it's really not a good idea. There's some foods that you shouldn't really feed a little baby. They need some tea. They need some size and strength. They, their body needs to change and mature in certain ways. This is also happening, not just physically, but spiritually, with Adam and Eve. All right. So, they, this is a shortcut. They take the tree. They eat the fruit. She gives it to the man, and then they're cursed. We looked at that last week. But then what happens because they eat? It says this. The Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us. Notice that knowing good and bad, knowing good and evil is an attribute of God. It's really good. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. He says, we have to, we have to put some limits now around the tree of life. And so the Lord God banished him, or the biblical word would be exiled. He exiled him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And he drove the man out. He placed him on the east side of the garden of Eden. That's the direction Israel is exiled later. With cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Do you see the cherubim guarding the way to the tree of life? So what happens is because they take the shortcut, because they choose magic, they don't actually get the tree of life. So I, I guess the question is this. Well, I don't have the question. The question is this. How do we find the tree of life? Like, where do we find the life that we're made for, the life that we're looking for? And Scripture gives us these symbols, I think, in Genesis 2 and 3. These are, are meant to be symbols that point the way forward. The symbols look like trees of life, rivers flowing. They, they look like cherubim. Cherubim. You know cherubim, right? Not Cupid, little cherub, but these great creatures with wings. The next time cherubim show up in the story of God is in the book of Exodus. It's actually in the tabernacle section. I emphasize tabernacle because half of you parents are going to get to take home very large tabernacles from your kids' classes today. Get excited. You're going to have to find a place for that in your car. But it's actually, your kids are going to love it. And they're going to need conversations about tabernacle. Can I give you a few to have? The cherubim, the next time they show up, 
is in Exodus 25. Look at this. It's this construction of the Ark of the Covenant. Two cherubim. The next time it shows up, it's right here in verse 18. There's two cherubim. One on one end, one on the other end, with their wings outstretched over the Ark of the Covenant. The cherubim face each other. They face the cover. And there above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the Ark of the Covenant of the law, I will meet with you. I, I'm going to meet with you right there at the, at the cherubim. What's happening here? The Garden of Eden is pointing to a habit for the people of God. That you need to come into my tent and to be with me. Presence. Worship. Right, right next to the Ark of the Covenant is this, they call it the bread of the presence. It's this food that, that represents food from God that's going to sustain God's people. It's, it's food that the, the priests are eating every week. They're eating a meal with God in his presence in a rhythm every week. Sound familiar? He said, I, I have some food for you here. Just on the other side, as they're looking at these cherubim where they could meet this, this God, is the menorah, the lampstand, also in Exodus 25. And the lampstand, it's decorated, it's made out of solid gold, just like the gold of the Garden of Eden. It's decorated with flowers and blossoms, and it looks like a tree of life. And so all the scholars are saying, this is a symbolic tree of life. There you have lampstand providing light and presence. You have food to eat with God, and there you will meet with God at the cherubim. You see, God isn't just saying, you will never experience the tree of life. He's saying, you need to come into my presence in a regular interval. Every week, come in and share a meal with me. Every day, day and night, evening and morning, the priests are required to tend that tree of life lampstand. It's, it's meant to burn forever, but it needs persistence. Day and night, night and day. Light the incense and let it rise. Continue to sustain this through presence. You see, you have to practice the presence as a way of accessing the tree of life. The Old Testament gives another window into where we find the tree of life. And it's in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is the only other place that uses the phrase tree of life in the Old Testament. New Testament picks it back up, especially the book of Revelation. But in the book of Proverbs, it says this, blessed are those who find wisdom, those who gain understanding. She, wisdom, is more profitable than silver, yields better returns than gold. She's more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Eve, Adam, man, I wish you had just walked by a few more times. She doesn't give the thing you're actually desiring. But wisdom does. Walk on by the tree of knowing good and bad, and you'll discover true life. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways. All her paths are peace. Do you see the Garden of Eden language? She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Those who hold fast will be blessed. This is all Eden language. You want life? Go the way of wisdom. What does wisdom look like? Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Adam and Eve, instead of fearing the Lord and walking by the tree, they take the tree and end up afraid of the Lord. 
She's half right. It's desirable for gaining wisdom, but she gets a hollowed out form of wisdom that just leads to you being exposed and in bondage. There's some things you can grab onto that don't give the life they promise, but there are some things that do. Wisdom. Third one in the Old Testament, it's meditation. Uh, Michael read this this morning. This is Psalm 1. Look at all this Eden language. Blessed. This is, this is Sabbath language. This is Eden language. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight, that's what Eden means, delight is in the law of the Lord who meditates day and night. You remember the, the evening and morning the first day, evening and morning, day and night, tending to the lamps back in the word. I think the, the vision that we're getting here, it says the person is like a tree, a tree of life planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. You see, there are ways back to the tree of life that give you what you're looking for. It's presence of God. It's practicing the presence. It's worship. It's wisdom. And it's the word. And it's like these aren't empty promises. There's actually someone who comes into the story and shows all of these promises fulfilled. You remember Jesus? So how does Jesus, how does Jesus give us this tree of life? He actually gives us the tree of life by becoming and entering into our world as the tree of life. But whenever he lives, he lives as someone who's sustained on habits like weekly worship. He went into the synagogue, as was his habit. He's sustained by habits like going away to desolate places and on mountaintops to pray. He's constantly getting away to pray day and night. He's in the Word. He's, he's in the temple. Do you remember at 12 years old, he's growing in wisdom. He's growing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God. He is having a full person experience. It's, it's amazing that Jesus never seems to have used any media or any technology. He's just present, fully human, in front of another. You could call the mud, I guess, that he used on the blind guy. You could call the, the kind of bounce back of being on the lake and speaking into the, the mountain. But he's just human in the best sense, in, in the divine sense for him. So he has these habits that show us what it looked like to live into this tree of life. And at our, at our church, we call these the transforming graces. These are habits that we see that Jesus did, that he just built his life around them. It's his trellis. It's his rule of life. He's not there by accident. He has power, and yet it still takes, even Jesus, it takes him time. It takes effort. There are decades of Jesus' life where he's not ready to do the thing God has sent him to do. He needs to grow. How much more so for me or for you? There are these seasons where we just need to keep looking for the tree of life. And I think Jesus shows us what these are. Let me go back to, to my garden. I think now, just as we're beginning a new semester, or just as we're sending kids back to school, now is the time to weed and to rebuild and to reseed the gardens of our lives with God. You want a paradise? You want a garden? It's going to take a little work to get it ready. Let me show you my garden one more time. 
that is embarrassing. Let me show you what me and my kids did this week. Um, I think it's in there. All right, here we go. It's actually pretty bare. There's a few seeds in the ground that in a couple of months, then they'll start bearing fruit. There's so much that we just had to get rid of that didn't need to be there anymore. And there was a little that we just needed to kind of restructure and, and hem in and prune. Prune. This is, this is the language Jesus used for us. Jesus is saying, I am the vine. I'm the tree of life. You're the branches. You've got to stay connected to me. If you want to bear fruit, you have to be connected to this tree. He says, I'm going to prune you. It's going to take time and it's going to take effort. It's going to take persistence. It's going to take a lifetime of preparation and pruning. He says, but if you stay connected and allow God the Father to prune you, you can bear much fruit. And the fruit that you will bear is love. So here's, here's our rhythm of life at Oikos Church. The Transforming Graces. Graces is an acronym. You see it here. G-R-A-C-E-S. And I, I just want to invite you to re-look at these things just another time for a couple of weeks as you get into this season of life. So let me just walk through these pretty quickly just to kind of tell you what they could be. Now, this isn't a lesson on the graces. We did, actually did a, a whole series on that. You can go back. And you can check them out on, online. If you want to know like the how-to or where does this come from or how do you see this in Jesus, it's all over the Gospels. But let me just do a quick refresher and just kind of ask you, can you make a habit of giving thanks? Now, this could be simple things. Basically, it's like morning and evening prayer. It's mealtime prayer. Can you just tell God thank you when you start your day? It's a pretty simple habit. There's lots of other ways to build in gratitude. You can journal could write thank you cards. There's lots of disciplines that this could look like, but giving thanks is a part of what Jesus is consistently doing. He's breaking bread. He's giving thanks every time he's touching food. The second habit is to reflect on the word. Reflect on the word. I, I think scripture before phone is a pretty good habit to have. Scripture before phone. Scripture before screens. But you can really do reflect on the word anytime. There's a lot of different ways. You can do Bible in a year. You can do a psalm a day. You can do a chapter. You can do a verse. You can do Jesus Calling. You know my guy, Tim Keller. He has multiple daily devotional books for marriage, for Proverbs, for Psalms. There's so many of those available, but just to touch the tree of life, to delight in the law of the Lord day and night, it is not going to take you captive. It's going to give you life and freedom. Ask deeper questions. This is one of the habits that's most clear in the ministry of Jesus. He's asking questions where other people are talking. He slows down to be personally present with people. This can look a lot of different... It, this can look like calling your mom every week. This can look like a date night with your, with your spouse or touching base with your sister or your brother. You see, asking deeper questions doesn't have to be so-called spiritual to be meaningful. This is about being human, and God wants you to step into this full human experience. It can look like spiritual. It can look like asking questions of the Lord. Fourth, commune with God. This is the practice of prayer. This is going into the presence of God day and night to just be with Him and to enjoy Him. It, it's the table. It's confession of sin. But it's also not just what we do here, but what we do at home. 
eat together, man, there's nothing more spiritual <laughs> than eating. Remember, the priest is eating in the presence of God. Every sacrifice that's offered to God, it's like grains. What are they doing with that? They're eating to the Lord. Meats, the animals, the lambs that are killed, th that's, that's somebody's dinner. The bread and the cup, God is, is glorified when we get together to eat. Jesus is constantly eating with people. Could you put in a habit of just not eating alone? Maybe have a designated mealtime for you and your family or you and your, your roommates where you're just present, inviting God through prayer to be there, yes, but just eating together. Last one is to serve, serve your neighbor. Serve your neighbor, it looks a lot of different ways. It, it looks like our groups, they serve together ideally every month. It looks like our ministries here, we have a lot of ministries that kind of run things on Sundays. But there's, there's so many different ways to do this. Can you just revisit these in the next couple of weeks? I think it's a really good time. You're not going to do it right now, but one of the group Reflect Guides in August will be on kind of revisiting these things and just checking in to see what you need to weed, rebuild, and reseed. What might be different if you did? Man, I'm excited for holidays like Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, I get a chocolate pie with meringue on top, maybe a chocolate sheet cake too. Depends like which Thanksgiving I'm going to. You know, there's, there's turkey. There's all this delicious food because it's celebrating harvest. You know, it's celebration. It's people. It's food. It's feasting. And you can have a season of harvest come this fall, come this winter, but it's going to take some seeds in the ground. It's going to take some structure in your life to do it. You will be able to celebrate what you've heard from God and where he's led you, the things that he's revealed to you and the things that he's healed in you. But those experiences, those harvest times, they must come through time and effort with a full person experience. Let me close with just a reflection on Jesus. Because the truth is, the tree of life is not accessed because of all the things that you do and the trellises that you build and the seeds. Just like my garden doesn't grow because I put some seeds in the ground. The only way my garden grows is by the power of God, by the grace of God. God, in his providence, makes it to where we can access his grace in things like rain and sun. So it is with our spiritual habits. We experience it, but God has come. The vine has come. The tree of life has come. And you know, he didn't come as the God and as the king who's going to live forever. In fact, it's the total opposite of that. You'll eat and you will certainly die. And commentators, they argue, what does it mean, die? They don't die. They, is God lying? Is God tricking them? But in reality, there's this scene that you could see in heaven where just as they take the fruit and they share it, the father looks at the son and he says, now you will certainly die. And it's not that it caught him off guard. It's that he knew that his people would need rescue and that they would be worth it. 
that the father's love for the son in heaven could be extended to the father's daughter and his son on earth. You will certainly die. You want blessing? You want life? He looks at Jesus, the, one, the son who would become Jesus, come incarnate as Jesus. He says, no, you won't be blessed, you'll be cursed. You've been redeemed from the curse of the law. As it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. It says that he bore our sin when he was put on the tree, 1 Peter 2. So that we could live to righteousness, he went to death. And I know you know this story, but just slow down for a second and think of the tree of life was cut down for you. For you. That the, the one who spoke the, the blessing on Adam and Eve you will certainly die, and he was cursed for Adam and Eve. The first Adam chose the fruit of disobedience, and the last Adam chose to let it go, and he didn't think equality with God was something to cling to, but instead, he gave up his divine privileges, and he took on the humble position of a slave, and he went all the way to the cross. I'm just rehashing what you know, but isn't it glorious? You have life because he had death. You have blessing because he had cursed. You have eternity because he took on mortality. Praise be to God our Father and to his Son Jesus Christ who rescues us from the curse. Would you stand? I want to pray for you. God, our Father, we celebrate the name of Jesus. It's by his wounds that we are healed, by his life that we're rescued, and we can't wait to look upon his face to tell him thank you. But now may our voices suffice, and may our lives seek you to be connected to him, the vine, every day. Would you give us taste of life In your pruning, would you be gentle? In your watering, would you give us just enough to flourish? Would you not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one? For yours is the kingdom and the power forever. Amen.